Hey there, this is Ryan Polly, and you are listening to Think Well, the podcast that trains you to think well and engage the culture for Christ. This week, we are going to be listening to session two of the Bread of Life English Summer Conference. This session focused on how relativism undermines your faith in Christ. If you missed last week, that was session one on how everyone has to start somewhere, looking at where you're at with God and how to move to that next level of a deeper relationship with him. In future episodes, we're going to be listening to the rest of the five sessions that were done there on how science and faith, are they compatible or incompatible, on why there is evil if God exists, and then lastly, redeeming entertainment culture. So I hope that you enjoyed today's episode on how relativism undermines your faith in Christ. And like last week, we are going to start with a short Q&A between me and the pastor at the Bread of Life Church, and then jump into the session. Here we go. So we're honored to have Ryan with us this weekend. Ryan Pauly is a teacher here in Los Angeles, teaches the Bible, theology, philosophy, apologetics, uh, things like that. He's been podcasting for a number of years, and is entering into a program at Talbot School of Theology to go deeper in this whole idea about engaging mind and culture. So, Ryan, you talked to us last night a little bit about your just your love for hockey. Yeah. <laughs> the Avalanche. Lost last night. Lost last night. So it's the series is now... It's uh, We're still up 3-2. Okay. So it's going back to Tampa Bay. All right. Uh, game, uh, game six is Sunday night. Okay, yeah. great. So, so you know, you, you, you really mentioned that for most of us, I've only been to one hockey game, and that was on a family <laughs> vacation in Vancouver. So we thought we'd do what Canadians do. Oh, there you we go. saw a hockey game. Yeah. But I had no idea what was happening. Right. And you basically assumed that for us as well. <laughs> what is it about? It's common. Yeah, it's pretty common. It's, it's not basketball or football. <laughs> but what is it about hockey that, that gets you excited? But then also, if you were to think about hockey as an analogy for life. Oh, man. <laughs> What would be I need some a preparation the, for this. Yeah, what would be some of the what would be some of the parallels? What gets me excited about hockey? Well, I mean, I think it starts out for me as a kid, right? So I was born and raised in Colorado. Mm. Born in 88, the Colorado Avalanche moved from Quebec, Nordi- they were the Quebec Nordiques oh. before. They moved to Colorado in 1996. So I'm, I'm about seven, eight years old when they come to Colorado and they win a championship. So mm-hmm. it's like, for us, it's like, what is this new sport that we don't know about? <laughs> and, and then we win the championship when I'm about seven or eight years old. And it's like, yeah. this is amazing. And so I fell in love with the team at that time and, and started watching. And so uh, I just love the, the skill. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. m- many of us don't maybe know hockey, but we've tried to at least ice skate. Um, it's hard. Yeah, ice skating easy. is hard. And like what these guys can do on their skates is like, it's like they're not even on ice with blades on their mm-hmm. feet and they can like pass the puck to themselves with their feet. And it's just like the skill and the talent I think that's involved mm-hmm. is just absolutely amazing. Um, and so that's, what's fun. Um, analogy to life, man, I think, well, let's, let's talk about the Colorado Avalanche. We were predicted to win the championship like the last like three years. Wow. And we lost in the second round the last two years. And so now we're finally like predicted again to win and we're finally there. And, and I think about, you know, like just like the, the disappointments, right? And the upsetness of life and like how do you deal with those disappointments? And one of the best players in the NHL is on our team. His name is Nathan McKinnon. And every year they're like, well, you lost again, but there's next year. And it's like, mm. I don't just want next year. Like, I want to succeed. I want to do this. And I think that, like, there's this idea of, like, how do you overcome adversity and how do you overcome those struggles? And it wasn't long ago where the Avalanche were last in the league. Mm. And so there's been a big turnaround and and, and things that are happening in that sense. And so um, I don't know. That's what comes to mind immediately is just there is obviously uh, through everything. I'll give one more analogy. Um, In game, uh, game four, our goalie, 
now I'm going to mess up my games. Anyways, one of the games, mm-hmm. our goalie did not play well. Yeah, it was game three, I think. And he played really, really bad. It was not good. And uh, everyone was saying, start the backup mm-hmm. the next game. And the coach went back with the main goalie. Wow. And they asked the coach, why did you do this? And the coach's answer was, well, I want to show my guys, like, yeah, you're going to have a bad day, mm-hmm. but I don't just give up on you. Yeah. Just because you have a bad game, I'm not going to say, no, you're on the bench. Like, mm-hmm. I want to show that I still have confidence in you, and I'm still going to put my trust in you, and I'm going to put you back in. Yeah. And he came back in the next game and played really well. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another kind of thing of, like, how do you just overcome adversity? How do you deal with those sort of difficult situations when things don't go your way? And do you mm-hmm. give up on those around you because they had a bad day? Or do you still mm-hmm. trust them in what they've done for you? And so yeah. that's what comes to mind. Well, that's great. That's the yeah. beginning of a new talk. I, I like that. <laughs> And so thank God for the coaches in our life, right? Either literally or metaphorically that that give us that chance and opportunity. Absolutely. So being a teacher at your high school for the last seven years. Seven years at my current school. So you've seen a couple classes go through. Yeah. And as you think of the classes that have graduated, come and gone, even from all around the world, and then you think back to your own days as a student <laughs> in high school oh, no. and what you wrestled with spiritually and your identity, your relationship with God. And so when you think back that way to where you were and to where the students are today, how are the challenges the same but also different? I think, sound, I think challenges are the same in the sense that we're, we're dealing with the same issues, mm. in a sense. Like, like, history just kind of repeats itself. That's why we can read the New Testament and see yeah. what Paul is like, church, are you realizing this? And it's like, we're dealing with that same stuff today. Mm. And so I, I think in that sense, it's very similar. I think where the difference, though, is, is when I was in high school, social media, like, just started. Mm. Right, that was like the time of face, uh, not Facebook, MySpace. Mm-hmm. Facebook started like when I was like a senior in high school. And so what, what is happening now is that students are challenged and exposed to ideas that I was never exposed to. Mm-hmm. I didn't have all these other ideas trying to shape my worldview. Um, mm-hmm. I had my church community, my school community, my friends and my family. And I you know, even talked to my dad as well of growing up in a small town of Texas where mm-hmm. everyone you know is at school with you and at church with you. Mm-hmm. And you're not aware of all the arguments against God and for atheism and all the postmodern things that we're going to talk about this morning. Like all these shaping ideas are not there. And I think with not only Hollywood, movies, entertainment, music, uh, with social media, I think our students are just flooded with ideas. Mm. And, and, and so what's different is that we have to take the time to think about those ideas. Mm. Because if we're not taking the time to show students a biblical approach to these issues, then they either assume what the culture says about Christians on those issues, which is often not good, or they assume the Bible has nothing to say about those issues. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's interesting of just this last, you know, as I mentioned last week, I was on a worldview immersive experience in LA and we talked about the Christian view of beauty mm-hmm. and the Christian view of art and music. And, and the students are like, I've never thought about it this way. Like I've never, I've always just taken beauties in the eye of the beholder. It's all mm-hmm. subjective. It's all relative. Not like there's actually an objective standard of beauty and God is that standard. Mm-hmm of objective beauty and how things relate to who God is. And there's, there's things that are actually objectively ugly. Mm-hmm. And we can actually desi- you know, develop passions and desires for ugliness mm-hmm. and not beauty. And so just like presenting that in a biblical worldview, the students are like, I didn't know mm-hmm. that like you could actually think about these things in that way. And so I think yeah. those are kind of the challenges, but I think it's what makes the job fun. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for including us as a part of your work. Absolutely. And being available. So look forward to this morning's talk. Thank you so okay. much. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited talking back about hockey. Is, um, 
Game six is Sunday night. I fly to Utah Sunday night, and uh, my team, the Colorado Avalanche, are playing against the Tampa Bay Lightning for the championship, and the team I'm working with on Sunday in Utah is from Tampa Bay. So I'm like debating, like, do I throw on all my Avalanche stuff? And like, especially if they win, right? And then I show up at the house and say, welcome, everybody. And I'm in all my Av stuff and their team just lost. Or maybe that'll get me off on the wrong foot right at the beginning. But uh, anyways, no, I'm excited. And, and uh, I'm looking forward to being here today. Um, as we think about how do we engage the culture, how do we take what we, we think about Christianity, how do we think well and then engage the culture, one of the big issues we have to think about is just the very nature of truth. We have to think well of what is truth. We have to think about what truth is. How do we know what is true? And then how do we have those kind of conversations? Because our culture is giving us a message that is not the biblical worldview often when it comes to truth. And that is this topic of relativism. And we'll talk about this here in just a moment, defining some terms. Now, as I mentioned last night, I go on immersive experiences with an organization called Maven. And, and I was on a, an apologetics immersive experience up to Berkeley. We were on the UC Berkeley campus having conversations with students. And we went into one of the lecture halls and we're walking through one of the big buildings at Berkeley. And I saw this like bulletin board with all these advertisements on it. And as the students I was with were looking at some other stuff, I went over to look at the list of advertisements. And on the wall, I see this flyer. Now at the top, if you can see that, it says the voice and spirituality experience. So obviously that catches my attention. I'm like, what is this? And so I click on it and I I look closer and I read this. It's an in-depth inquiry into the relationship of our spiritual awareness to our voices. This experience will teach you solid vocal techniques to free the natural voice combined with gentle spiritual exercises, empower you to speak your truth and sing fearlessly. And then it gives all this information. Now, do you catch anything? They tried to make it specific by putting it in all bold. This spirituality and voice experience is going to teach you how to speak your truth. This is why we often hear this talked about in our culture. Like, you have your truth and I have my truth. Those are your beliefs and I have my beliefs. Don't try to force your truth on me. Don't try to force your beliefs on me. Allow me to just live my truth and I'll let you live your truth. But the question is, is this how truth works? Is there your truth and my truth? Or is there something more just called like the truth? It's just what is true. And yes, we have our different beliefs on different things, but the truth is just true. But we're starting to live in this culture where we start to see ourselves and we start to see truth as this thing that is relative to the individual. So when we look at it, we have to understand and we have to think about the fact that there is this question we have to ask is what is truth? And there's kind of two broad categories right, of truth. There is a subjective or relative truth. And when you think about this kind of truth, think about ice cream. Right? Ice cream is a subjective truth. A subjective truth is what is true based on the subject, the person. I love coffee ice cream. Anyone else in the room love coffee ice cream? Hell, oh my goodness. It really is the best flavor. Right? I don't like chocolate. I think chocolate is gross. Right? But that is my just opinion that is not true for anybody. It's not true necessarily, it doesn't apply to you unless that is also your opinion. I think hockey is the best sport. You may think basketball is the best sport, and that's true for you. So you think about a subjective truth, we're talking about your personal opinions, the things that you like, the things that you don't like. 
On the flip side, though, we have what are called objective truths. These are truths that are based in an object. Not the person, but in an external object. So when you think about this, think about like medicine. Think about math. Two plus two equals four. That doesn't depend on what you like and what you don't like. It depends on what the answer actually is. Right? You see, an objective truth is true for all people, whether they believe it or not, whether they like it or not, whether they want to believe it. Right? Imagine if I, as I'm standing on the edge of this step, I misstep, and let's say I fall and break my arm. Like the bone is like sticking out of the skin. It's like gross, bad break. My arm is like dangling. You're like, oh my goodness, you broke your arm. Like, I don't think I broke my arm. Nope, I think my, I think, I believe my arm is fine. Like, no, your arm's not fine. It's like, nope, doo-doo-doo, it's not, it's not broken, it's not broken. I think it's fine. And then you go, but I don't want my arm to be broken, but it is. But that would be really bad for me if my arm was broken. I know, but it is. See, whether my arm is broken or not does not depend on what I want or what I like or what I think or what I believe. It depends on what is actually happening with my arm. And so we have to recognize that there are some truths that don't change based on us and our opinion. It's true for all people, whether they like it or not. So as a high school teacher, I have to always give tests after I teach something. So I'm going to test you on your ability to tell the difference between a subjective and objective truth. You think you can pass? We'll see. All right, so I'm going to put a statement on the board. And you have to tell me whether it's subjective or objective. So, for example, statement one, the guy's shirt is red. Who says objective? Who says subjective? Whose shirt are we talking about? If we're talking about your shirt, that's a true statement. If you're talking about my shirt, it's a false statement. But this is objective. Why? The color of someone's shirt does not change based on what you want it to be. Right? If you pointed at me and said, that guy's shirt is red, that would be false. It doesn't become red because you want it to be red. Right? It's based on the color of the shirt, not based on your opinion, not based on your, your beliefs. Now, if I ask something like this, or said that something like, red is the best color, who says objective? Who says subjective? Right? There you go. Someone might say, no, I, I think red is the best color, but someone else may think blue is the best color. Right? What color is best is going to change based on your opinions and your likes. All right, what about this one? Tropical island vacations are the best kind of vacation. Objective? Subjective. Wonderful. You're passing. <laughs> right? Uh, some people may not like tropical island vacations. They want to go to the mountains or they want to go into the snow. What about this one? Two plus two equals four. Objective. What if the kid believes it's seven? He's wrong. I think this is important to point out. Is sometimes telling someone that they're wrong can offend them, can make them upset. But isn't that the right thing to do sometimes? Like if you just let little kids, if like an elementary teacher let little kids believe that 2 plus 2 is 22 and 3 plus 3 is 33, by just combining the numbers together and go, good job, 100%. Like, that's like wicked in a sense. Like, that's like, like, what are you doing? Like, you're a bad teacher. But at the same time, if a teacher is like, hey, class, guess what? <laughs> Little Johnny thinks two plus two is 22. Like, making fun of him. Like, that teacher also has, has major issues, right? But the loving, compassionate thing to do, and what we'll talk about towards the end, is to come alongside and say, hey, why did you think this is the answer? 
Why did you put 22 here? And try to help them align their beliefs and their thoughts with what is actually true. That is objective. All right, what about our next one? I rode my bike 150 miles in one day. Who says objective? Who says subjective? Do you know if I've done this? You don't. But guess what? It's still objective. Why? It doesn't matter whether you know if it's true or not. What matters is, does how far I rode my bike depend on what I think I did or what I've actually done? Does that make sense? So this is a false statement. I've only ridden my bike 102 miles in one day. I love road cycling from Irvine down to San Diego. But the point is, is you don't have to know if something is true or false to know if it's objective or subjective. If I only rode my bike 10 miles and I say, well, I believe I rode it 150, it doesn't work that way. All right, so let's get a little bit more difficult. Um, atoms are consisted of protons, neutrons, and, and electrons. Objective? Wonderful, you guys get that one, right? Science we often see as objective. What about this one? God exists. Who says objective? Who says subjective? All right. The answer is objective. Now notice we get a little bit more difficult when we switch from math and science, which we, most of us believe is clearly objective, and now we get into the area of religion. Think about it in a simple way. Yes, I do believe that God exists, and some people believe that he doesn't. But does our belief have the ability to bring a being in and out of existence. If I said, I believe that there's a horse on the stage next to me, does a horse pop into existence? Of course not. In the same way, if I believe that God exists, that doesn't make him exist if he doesn't. And if I believe that God does exist, it doesn't, or it, if I believe he doesn't, the atheist believes he doesn't, it doesn't make God not exist if he does. God's existence is independent of our thoughts. And yes, we have beliefs and ideas about him, but his existence, whether he does or does not exist, does not change based on what we think about him. He either does or he doesn't. That's objective. All right, next one. Jesus is the only way to God and Jews are wrong. Who says objective? Who says subjective? Who doesn't want to answer anymore? <laughs> now this one sometimes people don't like because of the last part but you said Jews are wrong well here's the whole point if Jesus is the only way to God then someone who does not believe in Jesus or who denies Jesus guess what would be wrong if someone says all paths lead to God but really only Jesus does then they're wrong but guess what if Jesus is not the only way to God if there are multiple ways to God, or if someone else is the way to God, then guess what? Christians are wrong. We're wrong for saying Jesus is the only way if he's not. So again, it's not based on what I believe. I can't just believe Jesus is the only way and it makes him. He is either the only way to get to God or he's not. And that is independent of our beliefs. This is an objective statement. What about the last, um, the last one here, I think? Or oh, I got two more. Premarital sex is wrong. It's wrong to have sex before you're married. Who says objective? Who says subjective? Now, we've moved on, not from just science, 
and math to kind of a moral, um, a religious claim, but now we get into moral truth. And moral truth is where we start moving away from objective. This is objective. This is objective. Again, we have beliefs about it. But when I say what I believe about sex before marriage, that doesn't change the action itself. Let's think of a simple example, murder. Murder is wrong. And if someone goes, but I think murder is good, we would say, there's something wrong with you. It's not that murder becomes good if you believe it's good. This action is wrong. We're talking about the action of murder, not my beliefs about the action. In the same way, when we talk about this, we're talking about the action of premarital sex. It is either okay or bad to have sex before you're married. And what I believe about it should line up with what it is. Our beliefs don't change morality. Same one we talked about last night. It is wrong for women to have an elective abortion. As much as our culture wants to make this relative and subjective and say, yeah, if you want to have an abortion, have one. But if you don't want to have abortion, then don't have one. This is a common talking point. Like, I wouldn't personally have one, but I wouldn't say someone else can't. Imagine pl- applying that logic to something like slavery. Like, well, like, I wouldn't own a slave, but I wouldn't stop you from owning one. Like, no, if it's wrong to own slaves, then no one should. But if it's not wrong, then go ahead. But we recognize it's wrong. Therefore, it should be, it's wrong for everybody. It's not this like, well, I wouldn't, but you can. Notice how it treats that as subjective. I wouldn't eat chocolate ice cream, but you can eat chocolate ice cream. Versus, no, I wouldn't do this because... It's actually wrong. And therefore, you shouldn't either. Again, we're not just talking about our beliefs. We're talking about the actions. Now, but what we notice here is that there are some ideas that that begin to shape us. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in session two of how, yeah, when it comes to science, we're good on objective truth. But as we get more into the areas of religion and morality, all of a sudden our culture starts to shift. So some things to point out, some truth about truth. Number one is that contrary beliefs are possible, but contrary truths are not. Yes, we can believe different things, but different things, contrary things, cannot both be true. Two plus two can't be four and seven. Someone may think it's seven, but it can't be true. Number two, you can believe that everything is true, but everything can't be true. You can believe all sorts of stuff. You can believe the moon is made of cheese, and you can believe all sorts of things, but that doesn't mean that that is true. And lastly, you cannot affirm or you cannot deny objective truth without affirming it. Right? So if someone says, and we'll talk about this in a moment, there is no such thing as objective truth, they're making an objective truth statement. We'll talk about this in a moment. Now, how do we discover what's true? Well, there's a very common way, and it's probably something that you guys all do, and you maybe don't even realize that there's a technical term for it. It's called the correspondence theory of truth. And so the question that we're asking is, truth is that which corresponds to reality, right? And so it's said to put kind of like this way. If you say that something is and it is, it's true. And if you say that something isn't and it isn't, it is false. I mean, it's also true. But if you say something is and it isn't, or it isn't, and it is, then those are false statements. Let me give you an example. The remote is in my hand. That's what I say. You look at me then, and you say, is the remote in his hand? And you say, it is in his hand. Therefore, I made a true statement. But if I said, the remote is on the floor, and you say, the remote isn't on the floor, now that's a false statement, right? 
We aren't in Hawaii. We aren't in Hawaii. So what I said is true. We are in Torrance, California. We are in Torrance, California. Therefore, what I said is true. Right? And so what we want to do is we want to say, okay, what you are saying is what you say. Does that correspond to reality? You say it's raining outside. Is it raining outside? You go look for rain. If it is, that's a true statement. If it isn't, that's a false statement. Right? And this is what we do instinctively. But this is what philosophers call the correspondence theory of truth that help us understand what truth is and therefore help us understand what is when someone is saying is if what they're saying is false. Is what they're saying does not correspond to reality. Let me give you one other helpful tip to understand the difference between these uh, in case you're still kind of wondering. And it's, and it's this. An objective truth can be false. So if I said, I right now am in Hawaii. That it, my belief doesn't put me in Hawaii. It's a false statement. A subjective truth can never be false. So if I said, I like coffee ice cream, you can't say false. No, that's what I like. Now, I could be lying to you, but it can't be false. Because if you're saying what is your opinion, if you're saying it what is your belief, then that is your belief, and you can't be wrong about that. And so if, if someone makes a statement and you ask the question, could this statement be wrong? And if the answer is yes, you know you're talking about an objective thing. If it's like, no, they can believe whatever they want because it's their belief, then you know it's subjective. So let's give a few things. But someone might say, okay, Ryan, but... There is no truth. There is no truth. What are you talking about? You apply the claim to itself. You ask them a question back and you say something like, is that true? Is it true that there is no truth? Because if they say, yes, then guess what? You have truth. Right? It's a truth statement to say something like there is no truth. Or someone says, but there's no religious truth. You ask them a simple question. Is that a religious truth? Is that a truth about religion? You see, it's like when I was talking to my nephew when he was much younger one day. And I said, um, hey, um, hey, Tristan, can you speak Spanish? He says a few things in Spanish. I go, okay, cool. I say, hey, can you speak English? And, uh, and he says, no, I can only speak Spanish. And then you go, but you just said that in English. You see, these are what's called self-refuting claims. And it's actually really helpful in our cultural engagement if we can start to learn how to spot these things. Let me give you a couple of obvious examples. So if I told you, my parents have no living children. Some of you are laughing. Right? Because I affirm two opposite things. I affirm I have a parent, but then they have no children. But, so if I have a parent, then that means they have a child. But if they have no living children, then I can't be their child. So by saying, my parents have no living children, that can't be true. It's affirming two opposite contradictory things. Or if I said, my brother is an only child. You're not like, mm, let me talk to your brother. No, if I have a brother, then he's not an only child. Right? And so these are similar things, a little bit more sneaky, but to say there's no religious truth is a truth about religion, just like to say my brother's an only child is a point that he also has a brother, and he's not an only child. Or what if someone says something like this? I can't speak a word of English, like my nephew said. Well, 
didn't you just say that in English? Right? Now, oftentimes as Christians, we respond by saying, yes, you can. No, you, no, I can't. I can't speak English. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Often questions are very helpful. Questions make the other person think. So if they say, I can't speak a word of English, and they say, but did you just say that in English? I did. So doesn't that mean that you can speak English? They're like, no. <laughs> I don't know what to say at that point. Um, or you, uh, you can't know the truth about anything but science. There is no truth in anything but science. We'll talk about this more in our second session. The issue, though, is, is that a scientific truth? What science experiment was done to prove the statement that you can't know truth in anything but science? The challenge there is that that is not a scientific statement. That is a statement of philosophy. So it's saying science is the only way to truth, but it's using philosophy to get to truth, meaning science is not the only way. A couple more. Someone might say something like this. You should doubt everything. What question could you ask back? Now you've seen some examples. Let me put you on the spot. What question would you, could you ask back if someone says, hey, you should doubt everything? Yeah, should I doubt that? Right? We often want to like doubt everything but not doubt the thought about how I should doubt everything. Last one. What someone says, you shouldn't judge, Christians. Stop judging. What question could you ask back? Yeah, is that a judgment? Why are you judging me for judging you? Now, did, does the Bible teach us to never judge? I'd say the answer is no. Jesus teaches not that we should not judge. Jesus says judge rightly. Right? First take the, speck, you know, the log out of your own eye before taking the speck out of your brother's eye. Right? There are right and righteous judgments that we are called to make. So the Bible doesn't say don't ever judge. It's saying how to judge. You see, what we see in our culture, let's go over some more terms, is this idea of what's called deconstructionism, right? Where, where we are starting to believe and have this thought where the reader's interpretation is more important than the author's intent. So it doesn't matter what you said. It doesn't matter what you meant. What matters is how I interpret it, right? It becomes very subjective. There's some crazy court cases that, that line up with this, right? And, 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 and Christians do something similar, where we read the scripture in a Bible study and we ask a question like, what does this verse mean to me? Now, this is a good question to ask only after you've done what? Discovered what the verse actually means. Then you ask the question, how does this apply to me? What can I learn from it? But we don't read scripture. We don't read Paul in the New Testament and go, what do I think this means? Well, I think Paul means that every behavior is okay and I can do whatever I want. Well, of course not. It doesn't work that way. But sometimes we kind of fall into this trap where we start to think about these things and apply these ideas into our scripture reading where it's not just, um, what does scripture say? What is the truth? What is God revealing? Now, how do I apply that? How do I shape my behaviors? How do I shape my feelings and my ideas to what is true? We start to think that maybe we are the arbiter of truth. We get to choose and I get to decide what it means to me. It's my truth. We start to maybe fall into this. Now, last big term uh, that I want to look at you with you uh, this morning is what's called the law of non-contradiction, right? So this is saying that contradictory statements, what we're just talking about, 
cannot both be true at the same sense in the same time. The fancy philosophical way to write it is that on the right. A is A and A is not A are mutually exclusive. Let me give you a simple illustration to help this make sense. If someone says the earth is round and the earth is not round. Sorry, that was not supposed to go away. The earth is round and the earth is not round. Can these both be true at the same time? No. The earth cannot be a square and round at the same time. It's either one or the other. So the law of non-contradiction is helpful, not because it tells us what truth is. It doesn't. But once we know what the truth is, we know that anything that contradicts the truth has to be false. So if we have proven that the earth is round, then to say it's a triangle is false, and to say that it's a square is false. The same way we know that 2 plus 2 is 4, to say it's 7 is false, or 10 is false, or 10,000 is false. Anything that contradicts the truth is false based on the law of non-contradiction. So how does this apply to our faith? How does this apply to Christianity? Well, very simple. Scripture teaches that Jesus is God, and others come along and say Jesus is not God. These can't both be true at the same time. This is not my truth. I believe Jesus is God, and that's true for me, and you believe Jesus is not God, and that's true for you. It doesn't work that way. Either Jesus is God, or he isn't. And with the evidence pointing to the fact that Jesus is God... Someone that comes along and says Jesus is not God would be wrong. A word our culture often doesn't like us to use or to hear. You see, we see this clearly in Scripture. And we see how this kind of, how relativism is undermining the core of Christianity. Right? We're in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making the claim that he is the only way to get to God. And so if someone's going to come along and say he's not the only way, there are other ways. Those are contradictory statements. This is not just a belief that we have. This is a revealed truth that God has given us. This is objective. This is not just my opinion. This is what Jesus said. Me believing otherwise doesn't change it. So what do we do then? What do we do when we're trying to evaluate these claims and people are making lots of things? Let me give you three quick questions. Number one, does the explanation redefine the facts? So if someone is making a truth claim and they're claiming something is true, we have to ask the question, but does this redefine what we see? So for example, I gave you the one last night where, where uh, physicist Lawrence Krauss says the universe came from nothing. But then he redefines what nothing means. He says nothing is a bubbling, boiling brew of virtual particles coming in and out of existence. Well, that's redefining what the word nothing means to kind of fit a narrative that everything came from nothing. So we have to see is, are they starting to redefine words? Are they redefining facts so that their thing makes sense, but it only makes sense because they've changed some stuff? Number two, we can ask the question, is it logically contradictory? This is what we just went over. So to say, my brother is an only child, you don't have to look for that. You don't have to interview my brother to figure out if he is or isn't. If I told you guys you wouldn't believe it, right outside these doors in this area of the lobby outside, I saw a square circle. Uh, so if you go grab it for me, I want to show it to you. Like, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you can go get the square circle. No one's like, oh, where is it? Let me go find it. It's logically contradictory to have a square circle. It's either a circle or a square. You can't have a square circle. And so you don't have to be like, well, let me find some evidence. Let me see if this actually exists. It's like, no, that's logically contradictory. I don't even need to look for it. 
The last one would be, is it supported by evidence? People make a lot of claims in today's culture. The question is, is there any evidence that supports it? To give you an example, next week, uh, actually tomorrow, I fly to Utah to lead a biblical immersive experience. We're going to the, uh, the main Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, Historical Museum. And I toured that museum a few years ago. And it was a beautiful museum, wonderful exhibits. But all the artifacts there start with the life of Joseph Smith in the 1800s. So after I went through the museum, I went up to the info counter and I said, hey, I have a question for you. Uh, The Book of Mormon talks about these people, the Lamanites and the Nephites, living over here in the New World. I said, "Uh, do you have any evidence for the existence of the Nephites or the Lamanites? The guy said, that's a really good question. Let me... Let me see. And the lady next to him said, what did he ask? He said, he's asking if we have any Nephite artifacts. She goes, you know, we don't have any here. I said, oh, where are they? She goes, we actually don't have any anywhere. I then went across the street into the conference center. We went on the conference center tour where there's these beautiful, huge murals and paintings of these Lamanite, you know, Nephite cities and, and all this kind of stuff in the new world. And, and, and I asked the guy, I said, where are these cities? They're huge stone structures, not Siri. City. Um, <laughs> I hate this watch for that reason. I just got it. It was a gift. Um, but, uh, and he goes, we actually don't know where any of these cities are. And I said, why, why not? Where are, like, haven't we discovered them? He goes, no, I think that maybe like an earthquake destroyed them. I said, well, if an earthquake destroyed the cities, shouldn't there be like rubble? He goes, well, I, I don't know. Like, maybe God just doesn't want us to find them. Now, to me, if you have a whole story, a whole book, the Book of Mormon, that talks about these people groups, the interaction of these people groups in this world, but there's no archaeological evidence to support any of it, the question is, is if it's even true or if it's just made up. So this is how we begin to tell the difference between these truth facts and when people are making all this kind of truth claims is asking these questions. So if someone's might say, okay, but why Christianity? Why do you think Christianity is the one true religion? Well, let me just give you four basic points. I know this is a lot this morning. I gave you my slides if you want to go back over. Number one is that truth exists. Is there truth? If there is no truth, then it's not true that God exists. Number two, God exists. We have evidence that God exists. This is true. And so any worldview or belief system that says there is no God, by definition, has to be false. Those are contradictory. Now, if God exists, we have to ask the question, has he done anything to show who he is? Has he acted? Has he entered this world and done things? Lastly, has he spoken to us? So if we have good evidence that God has acted, that he speaks through his word, that he has done miracles to show his existence, then we know that the Christian worldview and the Christian view of God is true. Anything that contradicts it, therefore, has to be false. So in the time that we have, let me show you a video. And I want you to show a video of how this idea of relativism and truth just becoming more based on someone's subjective personal opinion rather than objective truth in the outer world, how it's beginning to affect students. And I want you to watch this video, and I want you to kind of see what stands out to you from this clip. Here you go. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately. But how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. 
Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions, just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong, like, that's wrong to believe in it, because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So, I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six-foot-five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six-foot-five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? That's a great question. If we can't answer as a culture basic questions, what does that say about our ability to answer questions that actually are difficult? The ones that actually do matter. 
The ones that do have an effect on society. Right? Notice what the one girl said. I don't think it's my place to tell another human that they are wrong. I am not in a place to draw lines, really, with anything. What about something like rape? What about something like slavery? What about something that's actually child abuse? Like, can you say, like, no, that's wrong? Or would you look at a father abusing his child and be like, well, I mean, that's, that's what you want to do. Like, I hope not. But notice also kind of the ethic, as long as it doesn't harm anybody. I heard this at UC Berkeley. Someone said, well, as long as it doesn't harm anyone, then that's okay. You can do whatever you want. Now, I think there's two problems with this. Number one is harm them how? Only physically? What about mental harm? Emotional harm? Spiritual harm? We don't like that one. Do they have to know that they've been harmed? What about a peeping Tom that peeps on people? They don't know that they're being peeped on. Is he hurting them? Yeah, but they're not aware of it. The second issue is this is a very minimalist ethic. Just don't hurt people. What about the call to actually do positive acts of love? Imagine we just live in a culture where, like, just don't punch them in the face. Like, as long as you just don't punch people in the face, we're good. It's like, no, we're called to love them, to hug them, to greet them, to say hello to them. It's a very minimal way of living. See, but uh, the Christian worldview and, and Christians have been affected in more ways. Just to quickly, because I'm running out of time. Um, study was done by Summit Ministries and Barna, um, where they found that 61% of practicing Christians embrace in at least one idea rooted in the worldview of new spirituality. Now, you might have to get the data here from me later if you can't see it. But for example, like all people pray to the same God. Like 45% or, or 33% of young Christians believe that. Now, notice also, if you're looking here at the right side, like these numbers, look at the, the difference between young Christians and older Christians in a lot of these. Um, for example, if you do good, you receive good. If you do bad, you receive bad. This idea of karma, right? Very much believe. 50% of young Christians believe in that. Or we look at another perspective, another worldview. 29% of practicing Christians believe at least one view of the secular worldview. For example, a person's life is only valuable if society sees it as valuable. That would be like the topic of abortion. Right? If we don't see you as valuable, then you're not. Or meaning and purpose come from just working hard to earn as much as you can in life. 37% of young Christians believe that. Rather than meaning and purpose come from who God has created us to be. Or the last one here. Um, or two more actually. Uh, 54% of Christians embrace, embrace ideas of a postmodern worldview. Notice the, the, these two in the, over here in the middle one. What is morally right depends on what an individual believes. 37% of young Christians believe that morality is relative. If you believe that something's right, it becomes right. Or if your beliefs offend someone or hurt their feelings, then it's wrong. So if a Christian view on marriage offends those that don't get included in that definition, then the Christian view of marriage is wrong. So if you offend someone, you're wrong by definition. There's also a Marxist worldview that shapes Christians in what we see as being how we use our resources and the role of the government and these sort of ideas. See, here's, I think, the Christian response. Here's what I think we should be doing and how do we respond to this. Watch this one. Seven, who now self-identifies as a six-year-old girl. What do you think of that? Man, I think it's interesting. I've actually never heard of someone identifying as a different age. I guess I shouldn't, you know, judge, you know, because everybody, you know, has their own, like, identity and stuff. 
liberated me. And I don't have to act my age. And by not acting my age, I don't have to deal with the reality that was my past. I don't have to think about adult stuff. I still drink coffee and drive a car, right? Even my tractor, but I still drive the tractor as a little kid. I drive my car as a little kid. Our culture is so unwilling to define boundaries, so afraid of being perceived as judgmental that they won't even recognize simple traits like age, sex, or skin color as unchangeable. If I were to say, I feel black, does that make me black? It, not necessarily, it, it doesn't. I believe you just are what you are. I don't think you really become or be anything. I don't think so because that's a biological law. There should be a difference between mental state and biological appearance. If a 65 pound woman came up to me and said, I'm fat, the kind, compassionate thing to do is to help her see herself in a way that conforms to reality. So is there any limit to what somebody can self-identify as? If you can find the resources to be the thing you want to be, you can do that. We're not, we're not ready for that. We are just now um, becoming more aware of social issues in regards to how you identify. If I identify as a 65-year-old, can I draw Social Security? If I say I feel like a Native American, do I qualify for Native scholarships? If I identify as a paraplegic, can I get one of those little handicap decals from my car? The real problem is that people don't want to deal with reality. I was never allowed to be a little girl. So I'm filling that tank of little girl experiences. It's easy, it's innocent. It's like, just play. Everything becomes a game. Everything I imagined couldn't happen, is happening. I think this is where us as Christians have to think about, is what is that response? Right, our culture wants to say the loving thing to do is to affirm the person, agree with the person. Right? As we talked about a little bit last night, that's not the loving thing to do. Right? If an anorexic girl comes up to you weighing 65 pounds and says, I think I'm fat, the loving thing to do is not to say, yes, you are, go for it. Now we're going to pay for you to get liposuction. No, that is the harmful thing. Right? And where I agree with what he says here, truth is compassion and how we present it. We have to bring truth into this cultural moment. And to do that, we have to know what truth is. And we have to be able to spot, spot lies and false statements. And as we train up people to do this, I think what we need to do with students and what kind of our immersive experiences do is, is the difference of not isolating our students, but inoculating them. Right, where a study was done at Yale University, and we have that same idea with, with viruses, is if you want to truly stop something, you don't just put someone in a bubble, but you give them a little bit of it. You, you expose them to it. Right? And, and the study at Yale was done to show that to, to get someone to believe a false belief, if you simply just say, don't believe this, don't believe this, don't believe this, often they will believe it. Jeff Myers, kind of the president of Summit Ministries, summarizes uh, the research at Yale and he says this, for people to believe a claim, they must be prepared to defend it against its challengers. Merely repeating the message over and over again, even with increased fervency, emotion, and clever staging is actually counterproductive, worse than no preparation at all. Here's what he's saying is that when the study was done, they found that if you just keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, and then you get really like emotional, but don't do it, don't do it, come on, you got this, don't do it. It's actually counterproductive. Like, don't take drugs, don't take drugs, don't take drugs. Don't. And the kids will go off and go do it. If we want to help prepare our students to engage the culture well, it looks like something like this. 
The antidote to indoctrination is to tell them the truth, expose them to the lies that would deceive them, show them how to refute those lies, and then prepare them with the thinking skills necessary to continue resisting falsehood. It's amazing, talking about all the students that have graduated my high school, amazing the students that have gone off and been exposed to lies in college, and they're like, oh, I already heard this from my teacher before, and he showed me why this idea is false. They're not taken captive by those false ideas. So I think if we are going to think well and we're going to engage the culture well, we have to know the basic core what is truth. How do we have a conversation with someone that believes all truth is subjective, that it just bases on our opinions and, and perceptions and opinions? And how do we come alongside that person and lovingly show them that truth is that which corresponds to reality? How can we bring truth and compassion together in these issues? Well, as always, I hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this week's episode, that it caused you to think well and hopefully prepared you to better engage those around you and have conversations to help lead people to know more about Christianity and to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Again, I just want to remind you, and I don't want to talk about this a ton, but I think it's important to throw out there that with the new ministry just starting, there are just a lot of things happening. There's a lot of costs, unexpected costs, things that I knew would happen, and just things that just come with starting a new ministry. And so if you have been listening and have benefited from this, or you just want to partner and just try to help more people receive this training and to get this podcast as well as live events and other things that the ministry is doing, I would love for you to prayerfully consider joining Think Well as a monthly supporter or giving a one-time gift to think well to help us continue to do this work. If you want to partner financially, you want to get more information on that, you can do so by going to think-well.org slash giving. On that website, it gives you three different ways that you can donate. And again, I would just love to just have you come alongside. And there are a lot of needs that I just want to make you aware of here at the beginning of the ministry. If you want to jump in and kind of help us get off the ground, that would be so much appreciated. Again, if you are listening to this as it just came out, I'm going to be right now. I will have been at Summit Ministries for about a week, uh, working with the students here, ministering to the students here, giving a few lectures, and just being here to be a mentor and help answer some of their questions. And so I would love for you to just continue to pray for me, my family, as we are here at Summit Ministries, just loving these students and helping them and trying to challenge them and work with them. Again, this is just such a blessing to be here and we're happy to be able to do this. And so again, just thank you so much for listening, for partnering with, for praying and for considering to partner financially. And if you have been giving financially, again, I just wanna say thank you. That gift is such an incredible blessing. So with that, I just wanna thank you so much. There are episodes coming up. If you wanna take a few moments of your time and rate this on your podcast listening app wherever you're listening and wherever you download this from that would just go a long way just to help this again spread to more people and help more people be able to see this and learn from the content if you have benefited from it and you think it's good content hey help me get it out to more people that would be very much appreciated so if you leave a review and a rating that would be awesome. And then as well, uh, just uh, again, looking for those episodes coming up here and other lectures that I gave at conferences this summer. And there will be some interviews coming up in the future when I get back from all this travel. But for right now, I hope that you enjoy some of these lectures that I gave at different events around the country, specifically this one in Southern California. So with that, continue to think well, continue to think deeply about God, Jesus, and Christianity, because I love saying this, as always, they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody. See you next time.
Won't hesitate to follow your love.